Welcome to Street Smart Success. This is Roger Becker, your host. When buildings are being priced at above replacement cost, that's when it's time to build. Today's guest, Michael Episcope, principal at Origin Investors, is focusing on ground-up multifamily development in the country's top growth markets. He has a long-term hold strategy to help investors achieve tax efficiency and help them avoid the risk when having to find replacement properties. So today we have with us a highly accomplished real estate professional. And when I say highly, I'm going to peg him at top 5% of people that I've interviewed. So I am so excited. He's done a lot of different things, has a couple funds that have performed exceptionally well. He is the principal at Origin Investors out of the famous Windy City he is Michael Episcope. Michael, welcome to Street Smart Success. Thanks for having me, Roger. Yep, you got it. So I see you went to DePaul. You're in Chicago. Is the fact that you went to DePaul, does that mean you are born and raised Chicago generations back? What does that story go like? Yeah, that's a good question. I guess um, I've never really talked about why I went to DePaul on any podcast or webinar. Um, I'll take you back even a little bit further. My high school career was in uh, in Florida. And so I, I was born and raised here. My parents are from Chicago. They were divorced when I was very young, about four years old. Lived with my mom. Um, and my mom eventually moved to Florida uh, to follow my grandparents down there. And I moved down there uh, when I was about 15 years old, I was a freshman in high school, and it was a pretty rough transition. But I'll tell you that the schools in Florida were not nearly as on par as the schools in Illinois. You don't go down there for the schools, but what did I know? So I would say high school was a lot of fun for me in Florida. It wasn't a great learning experience. And it was interesting because I really, um, I, ha- I didn't think about college and I didn't think about next. And, um, you know, I think it's just a product of being from divorced parents. When you're with a single mom, they're working, um, you know, she worked all the time and did the best she could. And it was my dad who ultimately like dragged me, you know, by the ear and said, Hey, you're coming back to uh, Chicago. You're going to go to DePaul. Um, and that's where he went. And it, it wasn't, you know, really DePaul was, um, it was a great school for me. It was, an, it's an urban school. It's in the city. Um, but I knew that it was kind of time to come back, time to get my stuff together. But I also knew that I was I was way behind the eight ball from an um, educational experience. I wasn't going to go to um, you know one of the higher academic schools in Chicago, and so I, I really started getting myself together my freshman year and started just um, studying hard. I was that you know the freshman. I had done all my you know fun stuff in high school, gone out partying late night, and I felt like I got that out of my system and said it's go time and time to get serious. And so I, I, those, that freshman, sophomore, junior year, um, I mean, I got straight A's at DePaul and did really well. And I was in finance and econ. And it was actually after my freshman year that I started to work at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. And that's um, that was kind of the beginning of my trading career, which I didn't realize at the time. I was 19. I got a summer job. I always loved to work. I loved to make money. And I just turned it into um, full-time and started um, pushing my classes tonight. So school... It actually took me six years um, to graduate, but I was already, you know, kind of four to five years into my first career. So much further ahead. And I think that is one advantage of going to a school in an urban environment is you have the opportunity 
um, to work and gain that experience. And so that was um, that, that's a little bit of you know why I went to DePaul. Um, I, I had a great time. I actually went back a second time. I got a master's in real estate in 06, graduated in 08, and that was my transition from my trading career into my real estate career. Okay, so let's take a couple steps back. I've already hit you with one question you haven't heard before, so now I'm going to hit you with a couple others just because I'm the weird guy that's interested in stuff like this. So your folks get divorced when you're four, single mom. She works super hard. And so did you have siblings, and what did your mom do to put food on the table? Uh, yes, I, I four other siblings. My grandfather helped out a lot. My dad obviously helped as well, you know, um, financially, but he was up here. In Chicago, my grandfather was down in Florida and he was at the house every single day. And he was actually in real estate and he was one of my inspirations for why I wanted to be in real estate. So my mom was a travel agent, you know, and I think birth order matters in any family. So I was four of five and I had some siblings who were a little bit of black sheep and probably more than you would. So, you know, I think being the fourth born, I, I saw how much, you know, distress my mom always had on her as a result of my siblings. And I just decided to be a good kid, kind of, you know, take a straight line, follow things. And even though I didn't have a lot of parental guidance, I always just followed the rules, you know, did the right things along the way. And and so I think it works out, but it's just so interesting to see, you know, where everybody else has, has ended up over the years. And you see this in other families too, where some people are, you know, just both ends of the spectrum when it comes to siblings, even though they sort of have the same set of experiences. So that, that was, um, you know, my mom, love her. She's still alive today. Um, just talked to her the other day, moved back down to Florida after 30 years being in Las Vegas. So she's awesome. So we don't have to get too deep into the weeds, but if you don't mind, so you're saying your older siblings, you, you use the term black sheep and you said interesting where people wind up. Did those siblings then pretty much stay on that path of black sheepness or did they turn a corner and all of a sudden they're successful and straightened out? <laughs> you're, you're getting pretty deep. So Roger, just <laughs> um, two of my siblings died. So uh, where it's um, me, my oldest sister and my younger sister um, who are here in Chicago and we're still very close to one another. Got it. I'm, I'm hearing drugs and alcohol, but we don't we don't need to go. We don't need to go down. So where was it in Florida? And, and then I won't torture you anymore. <laughs> uh, Tampa, St. Pete area. And I still have good friends and great connections down there. And ironically, you know, we're, we're back there investing and. That area, when you look at Tampa, where it was 30 years ago in uh, downtown St. Petersburg, it has evolved in an incredible way. And I always loved um, that area. And now it's sort of been identified by the rest of the world and the rest of the country for the lifestyle and a lot of jobs and just action going on down there. So it's part of our investment strategy going forward um, as well is to um, you know plant, our, plant some seeds in, uh, in that west coast of Florida. Got it. I am in, I'm an LP in a number of deals. Uh, One of them is in Tampa. I had lunch with the sponsor because he's in the Bay Area, you know, a month and a half ago. And he said that rents on that property, and I can't even tell you where it is. You know that market better than I do. I've never even been there. But he said that rents have gone from on certain units from like a thousand to fifteen hundred since he purchased the property maybe nine months ago. Yeah, it's it's kind of insane. And it's actually leading to some housing problems as a result, because what you have going on is you have everybody from the East Coast, from New York coming down. And it's this um, just this COVID effect and people uh, you know, now becoming remote workers. But 
The, the challenge is, is that when they're moving from New York or Boston or any of those high-priced cities, they're keeping their salary and they're working remotely now and they're, they're renting down in uh, the Tampa area, driving up rents, and they're displacing a lot of the people because the, the wages in Tampa aren't, you know, they're, they're half of what you would get in Boston or New York. So it's really like people from Boston and New York are benefiting greatly from a cheaper lifestyle, but certainly people, you know, who are... Uh, who've lived in Tampa for years are suffering as a result of it. And, and that market, I think, tech, you know, it's it's 20, over 20% rent growth year over year on average. You know, it sounds like your sponsor who you're with has done even better than that. It's kind of crazy. And Phoenix is the other one. Phoenix has grown north of 20%, approaching 25% year over year. And we've never seen this in, in any of our markets, but it's these massive demographic shifts that are just happening all at once. Sponsors tend to... I want to use the word crow, but that's such a pejorative, although it's not entirely untrue, depending on who the sponsor is in terms of them trying to talk when they have new deals going, oh, there's rent growth at 20% last year. And I'm a little bit of a cynic and I, I'm like, yeah, that was last year. So my question to you is, what do you see, you know, what, what's the ceiling and, you know, does that continue for the next year or two years or three years or when does the party kind of stabilize? Yeah, it's a good question because it's it's um, chasing momentum can be a dangerous game because you are right. Are there, and I think there's always this in your mind, maybe this reversion to the mean. Oh, we're up 20 percent. They're going to give some of that back. And what we invested in a few years ago, Roger, to ask that question, because rent growth is the single most important variable in a model. Growth is the single most important variable in any forecasting model. If you put in 5%, the deal is going to work. If you put in 2%, you're losing money. And, and so, you know, getting that indicator right and understanding where it's going um, is super important. And it's very challenging to forecast. But what we've done is um, for years, we rented um, sort of forecasts. And what we realized is that they just weren't accurate. They were no good. And it was such an important element to what we do. Hired two University of Chicago scientists, data scientists here in Chicago. And we really took a flyer. We embarked on this, this idea, you know, sitting down with them. Can we do this? Right. And let's take everything we know that drives real estate performance, the things that are in our head, that, that gut feel. Right. Because if it's gut feel, generally, you can quantify that and put it on paper and have a machine understand how to quantify that. And so for years, we've been working on this and what it does now, we call it origin multilytics. It's only for us. We analyze um, markets around the country to understand where growth is going to happen. And what these scientists do is they pull in millions of pieces of public data. Um, some of it, you know, is just interesting data. It correlates a little bit. And you, you see the same things, right? It's population, it's job growth, and it's affordability. Those are always the three drivers. But but how do you get ahead of population growth? How do you know when a market is going to grow by 10, 15, 20% versus a market that's going to grow by 3 or 5%? And there's all sorts of leading indicators out there. And when we're looking at the markets, I mean, we believe that there's still affordability in places like Tampa. We believe that Phoenix, even though it's run up considerably over the last year or two years, there's still uh, affordability there. There's other cities that, you know, are becoming less so uh, affordable. You know, when you look at the Miamis of the world. Hey, Street Smart listeners, I'd like to introduce a great partner for you. As you know, insurance is one of the biggest expenses on the P&L. That's why I'm recommending Assured Partners. 
Assured Partners helps you lower risk and, therefore, can save you tons of money down the road. They insure over 2 million market rate and affordable units and are the sixth largest insurance property broker in the U.S. If you want a roll-your-sleeves-up partner that blankets you with service, give Robert Band, Vice President, a call. Robert thinks like a CFO because he was a CFO for many years. Give Robert a call now at 305 467 5909. You'll be glad you did. You know, and so that's how we're really doing is we're we're very data driven and saying, look, here are our markets today, and these are the 14 markets we are in, but we don't need to be in these in three, four, five years. And if there's better markets for us to go to, like Salt Lake City or Las Vegas, and and our our data is picking this up, that those are um those have much more potential in terms of, of rent growth going forward, and we can build and buy properties you know, much cheaper than we could in other areas, then that's what we'll do. And, and we've always had a very um, nimble attitude about where we're going to invest, um, not necessarily how. We build, we buy, and we lend to multifamily, but certainly you have to get city selection right because beta is such an important part of your overall returns. And we've seen this um, throughout the market in the last year. If you happen to be lucky enough to own a property in 2019 that was in one of these um, COVID markets that benefited, you've done great without adding any value or doing anything just because you chose the right city. Very, very interesting. And so I don't even know how to frame this question, but the gist of it is this, is what I'm hearing you say is you hired these brilliant analysts from from University of Chicago, which, by the way, if if it were today, Michael, and you were trying to get into school, you wouldn't be going to DePaul. I have a feeling you'd be going to Northwestern or University of Chicago, but that's another subject altogether. I guess, how successful have you been then being kind of uh, at the front of the curve as a result of hiring these guys and and applying these analytics? Well, understand that it's uh, a newer venture that we've been um, back testing this now for, you know, two years. We built it the first year and we had no idea if it was going to work. And now when we look at these, um, the results, we know that we're um, a lot more accurate than what can be rented out there. I mean, we can do this at the city level. We can look at the submarket level. We can draw our own lines and we can even do it at the property level. So we're incorporating this into our underwriting today and using this in conjunction with the tools we rent, right? To, to constantly look at these things and, and continuing to iterate. The next phase of this, will really be using it in strategy. How do we use the origin multilytics to go to markets where we say, look, over the next five years, we have these four markets that are expected to outperform these four markets or, or vice versa. And so it, it could you know, indicate maybe potential sales in some communities, and it could be that we enter into other areas and are able to pay a little bit higher price for properties to get ourselves in there or start on the um, construction process and building because we know that over the long run, that's the market that we want to be in. It's going to give us the highest risk-adjusted returns over time. And I'll tell you something like, um, you know, we just broke ground on a deal in, in Jacksonville. And Jacksonville is an exciting market for us. It's in Florida. It's a smaller market, obviously. But when we um, ran our origin multilytics on that market, I mean, it was just off the charts. Um, everything we saw, all the indicators were positive, And we just kept rerunning it and rerunning it and said, is something wrong here? You know? And so, but um, we're excited about that market. And that would be an example of sort of how um, we use the origin multilytics in strategy, and we're still defining how we're going to use it going forward. As it pertains to this, 
Are you amenable to going into, because I would imagine you've got even secondary and tertiary markets that you see these trends. Are you market size agnostic or what does that look like? Well, we're not. Generally, we're going to go into a market, um, an MSA, as they call it, a metropolitan statistical area that has more than a million people. Liquidity is important when you're dealing with institutional product. And the, the challenge with going into a tertiary market is you can get you can get noise information when your denominator is only 20,000 people or 25,000 people and you don't have a larger city feeding into that. I mean, if you get a, you know, 2000 people who move to that community, it's still such a small number, but all of a sudden you're looking at, oh, the population is growing by 10%. So we want to look for areas that, you know, are sort of that seven, eight, nine hundred thousand who can hit that million and that are growing quickly and, and have catalysts to grow as well, that they're a lifestyle community, that they have anchors, true anchors, um, universities, um, that they have job growth and just reasons to live there. And I'll tell you, a really great community that we've gone deep into recently is Colorado Springs. That is, um, I think we're going to be one of the largest property owners in that market when we break ground on our fourth deal in that area um, in about six months from now. And, and we absolutely love that. The origin multilytics, you know, that again is off the charts. And when you look at it, it has everything you're looking for. It has transportation, it has jobs, it has lifestyle, it it has it it feeds off of uh, Denver and that kind of overflow. Because Denver, what made that such a great city 15, 20 years ago was its proximity to the front range, its lifestyle, everything. Today, I still love Denver. I think it's a fantastic city. If you live there, you know this, it's crowded. And you will be sitting in traffic. If you want to go skiing, you're going to be sitting on the weekends for three hours on I-70. Um, you can actually get to the mountain areas quicker from Colorado Springs. So we're seeing a lot of people sort of trade Denver for Colorado Springs. And then people even coming from places like California and coming in and moving there as well. So we're super excited about Colorado Springs. And that would be an example of, you know, it doesn't quite fit the tertiary, but it's definitely a secondary, secondary market. And so I know that you've done a lot of office and clearly a lot of multifamily. And I'm wondering, are you shifting more to multifamily now or what's your position on office? You and I spoke before we hit record about the need for people to be around other people and and how that I extrapolated that how that could translate into office. But let you answer the question. We are no longer investing in office, and that was a strategic decision. We really made after Fund 3, so it had nothing to do with COVID. And unfortunately, you know, in Fund 3 for us, which we were investing in 2016 and 17 during that period, Fund 3, about 30% of that portfolio was office. Now, some of it um, actually did very well in COVID because it was single-story adaptive reuse in the in the Southeast, and some of it was sort of your traditional office. We did fine in our, you know, kind of overall office portfolio, but it's not something we're doing going forward, and we've got a few deals um, left to sell. And, and that sort of, you know, unfortunately dragged returns down for us because we had one deal that we sold out for a little bit more than a scratch um, in that portfolio. And anytime you have money out for five years and you're just kind of getting your money back plus a small return, um, it drags down in the overall portfolio. And, and candidly, I look at it and I'm like, man, if we would have done, you know, taken that capital and gone into multifamily instead at that time, the, the fund, I mean, that would have been a, a 180 in terms of the returns. The fund still did great. You know, 70% of it was multifamily. We will end up in the top quartile in terms of performance in that fund. But for a lot of reasons, we're just, um, we're not in office anymore. And we think it's actually better from a 
strategic standpoint or an operational standpoint internally for our team to be focusing on a single asset class. And within that asset class, we're we're nationwide, so we're covering a lot of cities, so there's plenty to do. But again, we build, we buy, we lend. So we have three strategies within one asset class, but multifamily has historically delivered the greatest risk-adjusted returns in real estate in general, right? And so when you compare it to, you know, over the last 30 years to industrial, to office, to retail, to other product types out there, it's less risk with more return. And it's not going to be disrupted by the internet at all. And it's, you know, and the market is, if anything, it's super undersupplied right now. And the next five to 10 years still look really good. Runway's long. You know, I'm in a number of deals north of 10, let's say, and I let my guard down in July of 2020. I don't even remember what my thinking was a year and a half ago, but part of it was that it's with a sponsor I've been involved with 20 years. We're friends. I trust him. And the only deal I'm in right now that is not distributing a penny is a office, small office building, 30,000 square feet in Boulder, And I got to tell you, it aggravates the living blank out of me. (laughs) And it's just like, I don't know what I was thinking. I was thinking that, oh, it's bolder and that small office is not downtown Chicago or downtown San Francisco. And there's so much technology in Boulder and it's booming, you know, like Colorado Springs. I'm not saying that the markets are identical, but uh, Mountain West. And at this point, it's a goose egg and and it's sitting there unrented and it aggravates me to, to, to no end. So I, I, I get it. Yeah, but, but Roger, you made, you know, when I think about that, right, we all, um, you made the right decision. It sounds like you know the sponsor, you trust him, he's he's good. You made the right decision, or he did, in the city, the wrong asset class. And, and I don't know, like, the ins and outs of that, but, you know, there might be demand, it could come back. The, the challenge with the office is it it becomes binomial. Either you have a tenant or you don't. And so, like, when you have office and it's very concentrated sometimes, you might have an entire building with three to four tenants. And it looks great on paper and all the models smooth it out. But when you stress test it and you lose one tenant, you might all of a sudden be 75% occupied because you lost that one tenant and you're making zero cash flow whatsoever. You put that tenant back in and now your yield is 14% and it looks fantastic. So office is tricky because it is so chunky in nature and Candidly, it's it's expensive to operate. Um, you know, losing tenants today, especially with construction prices, you're probably talking about $150 per square foot to retenant in an office space. Well, you know what? And I'm just kicking myself. I don't want to dwell on it. But you know what, Michael? The performa in in hindsight, as I'm learning, because I'm just getting really into this game in the last year and a half in any kind of meaningful way as a limited partner. Even the pro forma was really not that impressive. It was like a 7% cash on cash. And to your point, when all goes well and, you know, it's tenanted at some percent, I don't remember. And so even had all things gone well, it really, the return was not amazing by any stretch, decent. Anyway, we, we can move on. And, and so now focus on one asset class, three different components to it. Sounds frankly, simplistically brilliant. And on your profile, you were, it said eight markets, but then earlier you said 14. And so I'm just wondering, you, you've named a couple already that you love. What are other ones that you're super hot on? 
Well, I'll give you a little maybe backstory on, on the way we're set up. So we have um, five offices around the country. Our headquarters are in Chicago. We're not actually not doing any investment here. We have an office in Charlotte. We have an office in Nashville. We have an office in Dallas and we have an office in Denver. Um, and those really serve as deal sourcing hubs. So we have people who live in those offices. Um, they are responsible for finding deals in those territories. And the real reason is because real estate is relationship driven. It's local and you can't be out of town money flying in, expect to get the first call deals, things like that. Money is sort of a commodity today. So you have to focus on the relationships. And our guys have been on the ground for for years. They know all the players, they know the brokers, the sponsors, everyone. And our whole strategy is to see the deal first. We want to be the first one on the speed dial. and, And that's kind of how we're set up. So when we're looking, um, you know, like the obvious markets are Sunbelt markets, low tax states. That's sort of our overall strategy right now. But it's been that way for a long time. And what's interesting is when you look at the last kind of 30 to 40 years of demographic shifts, all the markets that have won in COVID have been winning for the last three decades as well. That this There's been, been this migration from the north to the south, from high tax states to low tax states, and COVID just accelerated everything and really you know, kicked that into high gear. So we love, we have a great deal in Charlotte. We have, we're looking at a really great deal in uh, Atlanta too. We're, um, we like Atlanta a lot. We think that's one of the more affordable cities out there today with tremendous growth. And then it has um, a nice catalyst where our property is. That's the um, the Beltline that surrounds the, the city. So that's, it's always nice to, you know, when you're looking at an individual property to have an anchor nearby for residents to um, have a reason to rent at your apartment complex. So we always look for that on the ground. Tampa, we love. So congratulations on on being there. Jacksonville, we're there. So, I mean, I can go on and on. I mean, there's some, I would say some cities that we're less excited about when we look at them and we're ranking these things. Chicago, we've actually um, removed from our uh, target market. So we're not investing here because you really, you, you can't, um, you just can't make sense out of it, right? If your capital can go anywhere and you're looking at the fiscal woes in Chicago, what's happening with the taxes, the crime, everything, and you have the opportunity to invest in a Nashville or Austin or Phoenix that we couldn't, it's pretty easy to make that make that choice. And then you have some areas like Houston. Um, at Houston, I would say is on, it's not a sell necessarily, or we're completely getting out of there. We have some properties there and we're, we're watching it. And, you know, our belief and what Origin Multilytics tells us is that it's going to have more anemic growth than some of these other communities. That being said, um, Houston has also enjoyed, you know, a kind of high teen, low 20s growth in this last year. So rebounded extensively from COVID. And I always find the interesting thing about Houston is it's this non-correlated market. So if you have inflation run away and you have oil go to $200, guess what the only city is? that's going to benefit. Well, that's going to be Houston and all your other cities might suffer as a result. So it's it's never a bad idea to have some exposure, but how you get in there, how you position yourself is really, really important. And like I said, as, as much research as we do, I always reserve the right to be wrong. And I can make an argument for why not to be in Phoenix and why to be in Chicago? And the answer is water. And when you look at what's going on in the Southwest and you look at what's going on in California and the water issues, you have to ask yourself, like, how big of a problem is this going to be in 15, 20 years? And then you look at Chicago and we have one of the largest fresh bodies of water in the world, right? One of our greatest assets. So those things, you know, they they don't make it into the underwriting today, but they're always on the horizon. They're always in the back of your mind. You know, I think I'm right, but I could be wrong. And I think that's a really 
important thing when you're looking at markets and you're thinking about investment strategy and it's the don't put all your eggs in one basket and you can have an opinion but not be opinionated and so we're not going to um, invest the entire fund in phoenix or in austin no matter how many great deals we find in those places why do you think uh houston is you project the growth will be anemic barriers to entry quite simple in Houston, you have just a ton of land and, and the way that city has been expanding, there are no barriers to entry. You can pick up pretty much a permit at the grocery store and build whatever you want. So land is cheap, building costs are cheap, and you know the population is growing, but they just continue to build and build and build in Houston. And it's been lucky. It's in a zero tax state and it's had a tremendous amount of population growth. But um, you know, it's it's the supply and demand issue there. So I've heard. What do you like in terms of asset class? Uh, well, we're we're only in class A, and, and I'll answer that in a little bit of different way. So today, what we're seeing is we're only doing ground up development. We're we're lending and doing ground up development. So it's a little bit of a barbell approach, and that's a way that we can protect our capital. So the middle part of the spectrum is buying what we do, and we buy value add, we buy core plus. The challenge with the middle, and I'll start there first, is that replacement cost. And today you're seeing replacement cost of those assets. If you're buying something 10 years old, you might be paying 10 to 20% above what you can build something for today. And if you then have to put $15,000 per unit into the property, now your basis might be 25 to 30% above replacement cost, and you're going to sell it in five years at another 20% higher than that. So you start to run the math and you're like, look, I don't really want to be there because if the market turns around, that 10-year-old property when it's 15 years old is not going to be trading above replacement cost. I would rather build something today at $250,000 a unit with the idea that I can hopefully sell it at 310, 315 a unit. And if the market comes down from 310,000 unit and you're 270 in five years, if a you know bad recession happens, all you've done is made less money than in that situation. So in a value add, you will have lost money. So for those reasons, we're really focusing only on ground up development today because we think it's just the right place for the money to. And it sounds like an oxymoron that development can be less risky than buying a core plus or value add deal. But when you look at the margins on development versus the margins on um, core plus and value add, it's not even close. You can build a gross margins on development for 30, 35, even 40% in today's market. And on a value add deal, you're maybe getting a 10% gross margin. So not nearly as much protection to the downside. Well, you know, what you just said is deeply interesting and profound. I mean, there's just droves and droves of sponsors, probably more than ever. You've got more coaches and mentors, you know, boot camps than ever. So you've got a million folks on the ground doing their first deal, first couple few deals, buying, you know, B and C class stuff with the value add component. And all I'm hearing is buyer beware in that uh, the only way to really mitigate your risk is to just somehow know that the sponsors stumbled upon such a deep value add that there's so much daylight and margin for not error, but kind of so that you're covered. Do you think that's yeah. a decent description? Yeah. But you know, the challenge with that, Roger, is it's not a scalable business plan. And, and you might find a, a deal once a year that falls off the apple cart, but they just don't happen on a regular basis. So to have a strategy that you're going to go and value add and to have all this edge, you know, people 
who are selling 20, $30 million deals, they, they want to get the highest price. And then they don't just go like do a transaction in the back alley and say, yeah, here you go. And and so it, it doesn't happen in that way. And, and for that reason, there's just not enough margin in the value add. And, and when you think about, you have to follow capital too. And there is so much value add capital out there right now that it's just squeezing the margin out of the price. And if you find a good value add deal, and we were in this for a while, we just stopped. We're like enough banging our heads against the wall because we would get to the table and we would be one of 25 groups who are bidding on this thing. And we would make it to the top five, top four, top three. But after a while, you're like, this price doesn't make sense. How are they doing this? And so we've just um, decided to, to switch and focus exclusively on the ground up development but it's really it's ground up development with the intention of holding the property long term and and so a lot of our strategy especially in our funds is about being tax efficient and so what we're doing is taking the playbook from family offices more sophisticated investors institutions pension funds and it's a build a core model so find a fantastic location in a great growing city that's going to continue to grow for years. You build value and you hold on to the property and you enjoy the benefits of holding real estate long term, which are the ability to refinance tax free depreciation, you know, and so having and, and continued appreciation. And I think one thing that we got wrong early in our existence was we our model was very much buy, fix, sell. And the challenge with buy, fix, sell when you're talking about taxable investors is that when you take a great asset and you add value and then you sell it, you create these frictional elements to the investment. Number one, you have to pay a lot of taxes, even if it's long-term capital gains. Then your money sits around. Then you have to take more risk to find in a new investment. And so what we've done is we've just modeled it out and, and said, look, we can take less risk and make more money by building these assets, holding them long-term, creating a tax strategy, generating yield, depreciation, tax-free passive income, and it's, it's a way better model and because what we've seen is all the deals we've sold in the last three, four, five years, they come back around and they're 25, 30% higher. And in general, our investors used to ask us or just make the comment, you know, hey, that's really cool. We sold that deal. We generated an awesome return. Now what? Why did we sell that? What am I supposed to do with my money? Why don't we just keep it and cash flow it? And you start to hear people say that. And it matters. And, and it really matters because this is our money. My partner and I, we've invested more with Origin um, in our own deals than anyone else. And this is, and we're taxable investors. So we're kind of, we're kind of tired of being on that buy, fix, sell hamster wheel. We're like, why don't we buy great properties, add value, protect our basis, refinance, take our money out, and then just hold it long-term. And that's our strategy going forward because we just believe it's a better way to build wealth. So when you say uh, long-term hold, and, and obviously it's not the same for every property and, you know, things change and et cetera, but what are you talking uh, in terms of length of hold? So the way our funds are set up today, Roger, is that they're, um, we have four funds, essentially. We're launching another fund next year, and they're open-ended funds. And I'll talk about maybe the fund that we're launching next year because that is an interesting twist to it. It's, it's Growth Fund 4. So it's our fourth fund in a series of growth funds. And the, the growth funds prior, like fund three, was a combination of value add and ground up development. This is only going to be ground up development. So it's those people who, you know, they don't care about income um, and they really want to put the pedal to the metal and focus on appreciation. Now, the interesting thing about this fund is it is what we call a build to core strategy. The fund will be 10 to 12 assets, all ground up, diversified, 
but it'll be the shortest dated fund in the market. It's only five years. It's actually four years from the end of the capital raising period. And what we do at the end of four years is we give the investor the choice if they want to punch out and liquidate their position or if they want to stay in and continue year after year after year, they can redeem. So we're really giving them the choice and it has a couple of advantages. Number one, there is no fun tail whatsoever. And if you've ever been in private equity and funds, you know, it can take a while for a fund to not only buy properties, but also to liquidate them. So this gives an opportunity for people to get out immediately. But for those who want to stay in, they can't. And we'll continue to hold this set of properties and we'll refinance it and we'll cash flow it and we'll do everything. And, and they, you know, they can leave their money in there and not pay taxes on it until the point at which they sell. So it's a very kind of creative structure that we've designed, but it's because we've been listening to our investors for the last five years and what they want. And it's, it's candidly how we want to invest our money as well. Interesting. And how long has it been? I, well, I, I guess I'm then gathering from what you just said in terms of the strategy pivoting to all ground up. It sounds like this is the first fund because fund three was a combination. This is 100% ground up. So this is dedicated. And, you know, if the world looked the same way it did in 2017 and 18, we would have value add. We just don't think it's a good strategy today. So we're not going to do a strategy just because we did it before. We're going to position our capital in what we believe is the, you know, where the best risk adjusted returns can happen. I will say we also have a, a QOZ fund and that fund, we just closed fund one out last month and that topped off at $265 million. And that is all ground up development in that fund. And we launched that in 2019. So the, the team has been incredibly um, busy finding deals for that fund, building the deals, managing the deals, doing everything. And we just launched QOZ fund two, um, which is also all ground up development. So again, you know, our strategy is lending and, um, and building today. So with these, the ground up uh, projects, what's like average size number of units? Typically what we're going to do, um, 250 units is the answer. So we will go maybe as low as uh, 200, as high as maybe 400, but that 250 to 300 units is sort of our sweet spot. So when, when you think about size, depending on the market, some markets are cheaper to build than others. Check size is going to be anywhere from 50 to about 80 million dollars to back up for a sec you have offices in uh, charlotte dallas uh, nashville denver if i already said it and you said because this is a local business it's relationships and you know it, you know you want to be the first one and it, it and it's the guy on the ground as opposed to from a city you know 1500 miles away so as it pertains to ground up what are these guys doing in these offices? Are they basically trying to find the land to buy? We are a joint venture model, Roger. So we are really creating relationships with the sponsors who are on the ground. And our, our model, like we've always um, had more of a national view and sponsors typically tend to be either city-based or regional-based. And so we are the ones coming in there with the 90%, the 95% capital and funding them either in the pre-development stage. So we do provide GP capital as well, but then it's the LP capital when it comes to capitalizing the development where we come in. And then what we get for that is, you know, the economics are split, the sponsor gets promoted on that, and then we control really all the major decision, have the major decision rights in the deal, the buys, the sells, the refinancing, property management, et cetera. 
Got it. And then how do you deal once the properties are built? How do you deal with the property management piece? So good question. We, we have in-house um, asset management and we've actually made the, made the decision not to have property management in-house. And, and the reason is, is that we, there's two reasons why you want to be vertically integrated in property management. And one is quality control. And the second is that you want another business line generating fees, right? We think there's a conflict. We're an investment management firm. We want to focus on investments. So when it comes to selling a property, we don't want to you know, not sell it because we've got eight people who work there. And so how do we overcome the quality control? Because that's the argument for being vertically integrated. And I believe that we have one of the best investment management teams in the market. And when we come into a property, we are making the decision on who is going to manage that property. And our investment management team, it's headed by Mark Turner, they have a playbook. It's you know kind of 40 to 50 pages and it's a playbook and it's on best practices about how to manage a property. And we go in there and we are the ones training the property management company on best practices, how we want our properties uh, to be managed, right? And on top of that, we have all of the technology set up where the data from each and every property in our portfolio is being aggregated together. So our team can see it in real time. They get to see what the traffic is on the leasing side. They get to see the conversion rates. They get to see the reviews on a daily basis, good or bad. And they can then contact the property management to craft the appropriate response. And, and all these things are really, really important because there are some investment managers or asset managers who are, they're not doing a lot more than reporting or taking reports. And, and what we're doing is we're looking at our properties and we're benchmarking them against a comparative set of properties and saying, hey, look, you know, it, it might sound great that your property is operating at 94%, but not if the competing properties are 98. And your 2% rent growth might not sound great, except if the other properties in the area have actually grown by minus 2%, right? And so everything is relative to, to a benchmarking and a comparable set. And that's the value that our investment management team provides in, in building, you know, from, from the time they basically evaluate a project, they're holding hands with it all the way through development, stabilization, leasing. So when that property is core, they're the ones who are, are managing it. And I think it's, it's a great way to do it. I think that this is a superior model because we can fire the property manager. If you're vertically integrated, you're not going to fire yourself. So this has been, um, you know, I have learned so much, which is why I wanted to interview you because uh, you just seem like you're out in front of the pack. And I'm super sincere when I say that. I'm just sitting here like trying to keep up with what you're saying. What would you say is the top couple few lessons you've learned along the way? Invest in people. And, and I mean that from both sides. You know, when you are investing, you know, as an investor and you're looking at it, you have to evaluate the people. And, and you had mentioned earlier, Roger, the pro forma. I, I think pro formas are generally, they don't mean much, right? You're trying to forecast the future and you want to make sure that you're um, investing with really competent people. And, and for us, like my partner and I, um, who I can't take credit for all this, he's a big part of it. You know, it's, it's about our people internally as well. And that's what we've realized over the years is that a company is only as good as the people who you hire. And we want to make sure that everybody 
at our company, um, we have a great culture and that we're aligned and that people are thinking like owners. And, and what I mean by that is that they're taking ownership each and every day they walk in and, and good people don't have to be managed, you know, and we have a fantastic team. We just had our holiday party a few days ago. We were celebrating a great 2021 and, and it's really, it's about them. They're the ones who make this happen. I think my partner and I, we've sort of set the mission, the mission, we've set the tone and, and they take the ball and run with it. And, and I'm really proud of the team that we hire, um, that we've hired and assembled and kept together. Any other key lessons? You know, it's it's a good question. I don't like just off the top of my head. Not not really. Um, you know, that <laughs> okay. would be it. You know, people. This it, it's a it's a people business. You know, and I know that everybody wants to you know look at real estate and IRRs and pro formas and dig those apart. And you got to make sure that the the people who you're investing with you really like and enjoy because when things turn around and they will at some point. You have to ask yourself, is this the person who I want in the trenches with me? Do they have money with me? Are they aligned? Are they good risk managers? Are they good operators? Are they going to communicate well? Do all the things that matter to you and and look at their history of doing that. Words of wisdom. How does, uh, Michael, uh, to get a hold of you, get involved with what you're doing, how do they get a hold of you? Go to our website, origininvestments.com. We make it really easy for people to interface with us. You can um, have a conversation with somebody in our investor relations department by uh, just signing up right there, or you can just download our documents right from the website. If you want to look at one of our funds, if you want to learn more about us, we make it super accessible. Fantastic. I've enjoyed every second of this. I appreciate the time and I can't thank you enough. And I hope you have a great holiday season. Same to you, Roger. Thank you so much for having me on today. This was fun. You got it. Talk to you soon. (laughs) 